G'day. Thanks for joining us in this Broadway Spotlight edition of The Stages podcast. A Spotlight replay brought to you by Academy Travel, a leading specialist in small group cultural tours. And we've got exciting news for you. Join me in January 2024 as Academy Travel takes us to the city that never sleeps on an immersive and jam-packed adventure into theatre, opera, jazz and cabaret. A 10-day tour in which we will sample the best of Broadway, the Metropolitan Opera and jazz in Brooklyn, alongside a host of cultural experiences at museums and galleries populating the Big Apple. As your stage's host, I'll be leading the tour, accompanying participants in an exciting array of activities that are bound to delight, thrill and engage the eager theatre fan. What can be better than diving into arts and culture in the greatest city in the world? The Big Apple, the city that never sleeps. Find further information at the Academy Travel website, academytravel.com.au and search Theatre in New York, Best of Broadway Tour. To whet the appetite, Stages will be visiting conversations with Australian artists who conquered the Great White Way in a series of Broadway Spotlight episodes, brought to you by Academy Travel. Howard Sherman, though not Australian, is a guest we've featured on the Stages podcast due to his extensive relationship with the Theatre of Broadway and New York. Howard was Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing from 2003 to 2011. During that time, he served on the Tony Awards Management and Administration Committees. Howard was the first General Manager of Goodspeed Musicals, working on 24 new and classic musicals, including the US premiere of Alan Akebourne and Andrew Lloyd Webber's By Jeeves. He has moderated artist conversations for public audiences for more than 30 years. And when Stages spoke with him, he had just released a book on the eternal fascination and magic of Thornton Wilder's Our Town, a classic of the American theatre canon. Howard Sherman was a guest on the Stages podcast in December 2020. Howard joined Stages from Manhattan in a fascinating conversation about this classic play and to ponder the future challenge for world theatre. Howard Sherman, what a delight for me it is to welcome you to the Stages podcast all the way from Manhattan. It's it's very exciting to travel this way because it's, it's about as much travel as I get these days. Oh, don't you love technology? It, it's certainly been a crutch for us all this year. Well, if we didn't have the technology, I, I can't imagine what it would be like, how, how isolating. It's isolating enough. And of course, you all are further ahead than we are. Um, but without it, uh, it would be just just unimaginable. It's forced us to learn many new tricks. And it's forced theater artists to express themselves in different ways and to use different tools, which has really been pretty fascinating. Yeah. Describe for me what your year has been like, because I imagine it before the pandemic, it was full of nights at the theater. Well, that was January and February. I see, I see roughly 120 shows a year. I'm not one of these diehards who's, who's going you know, five nights a week. Um, but it's very, so it's, it's just, it is still very strange not to go two or three times a week to a show. And uh, so, so yes, that was my January and February. And then it, came to a screeching halt that is it did for everyone here in Manhattan on the 12th of March, I believe. 
and from the the funny story on all of this is my deadline for my book was originally February 1, which I didn't quite make. And then it was moved to March 1, which I didn't quite make. But I actually sent the first draft off to the publisher on Monday, March 9th. And I thought, oh, well, my editor will take a couple of weeks to read it so I can start going out and having lunches and seeing people again. Because I'd really, from about mid-December on, I was doing seven days a week on the book. <laughs> and... So that's what I thought I would be doing starting, starting March 9th or 10th, and uh, that didn't last. My, my timing could not have been worse. <laughs> my last news of the state of Broadway was uh, the League of American Theatres announcing that they hope to reopen on June 1st next year. Is that still the case, do you think? I think the case will be determined ultimately by what we know about the, the widespread uh, inoculations that are on the verge of beginning here in the US, um, possibly in the next couple of days. However, based on what I'm seeing and hearing and reading, um, we're not going to have widespread distribution until the late spring. So the first step is going to be actually making it safe for people. The second step is going to be convincing people that it is safe so that they're willing to come back because the worst thing that could happen would be for these shows uh, and not just Broadway, off-Broadway, regional theater. The worst thing would be to come back and then have to shut down again because the costs of restarting are going to be huge, whether people can weather the risk of restarting twice, which they've, they've ultimately been experimenting with a little bit in the West End, uh, is, is something that would be very, very concerning. So it's going to be about gauging the market, about gauging the real safety and gauging the perception of safety. Yeah, cl clawing the way back is going to be a huge task. I, I read an article recently where the, the big costume-making firm in New York that does all the costumes for the Broadway shows and afar uh, look like they're on the brink of closure. Um, and if you lose a resource like that, uh, just that alone, I mean, that's going to make things very difficult. I think we're going to find it in almost every part of the business, in ancillary businesses, the sheer fact of how many restaurants are going out of business in New York, people's ability to have dinner before or after a show may be impeded, which is part of the experience for many people, may be impeded by the fact that there just won't be as many seats in restaurants. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it filters out in every way and ultimately it goes beyond theater, it goes beyond performing arts, it goes beyond New York, everybody's interlinked on this. It's going to be the same story, except to the extent that the Broadway theater is, has traditionally been very tourist reliant. And so if the shows that open back up initially are the shows that have already been playing for five, 10, 15, 20 years, they're gonna be reliant on tourists and their tourists gonna feel safe in coming back. I think newer shows, again, provided it is safe, may do better, at least in the short term, because they can rely on, on the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut audience. 
I know a lot of my Australian friends who've been based in, in New York and, and Los Angeles uh, pursuing their, their dreams have been uh, flying back to Australia. I imagine that's the same with a lot of Americans too. People have been fleeing, you know, the theatre capital of New York to go back home to uh, find security and safety. Uh, well, in point of fact, what happened here in March, April and early May was terrifying, the rates that we were seeing. If you now look at the rate of infection per capita, New York is one of the safest places in the country. Now that wouldn't last if we started trying to convince people to come in from elsewhere and didn't have uh, protection of, of a vaccine, but it's, I mean, there's risk everywhere in this country that cannot be denied, but on a per capita basis, New York is, is one of the safest places to be right now, relatively. Well, in times of catastrophe and world tragedy, the, the theatre has been a safe haven and people have been able to flock to the theatres during the times of depression and World War II uh, for escapism. The pandemic certainly has stopped the ability for us to do that. Um, can you describe for the person who hasn't, the listener who hasn't been to New York, what those theatres are like? They're very intimate spaces, aren't they? Broadway houses are depending on which one you're in. There are Broadway houses that are just under a thousand seats. I think the largest might be about 18 or 1900 seats. Uh, compare this with some of the theaters around the country that Broadway shows tour to. These theaters are smaller, but there are certainly big stages and there are intimate houses. Uh, so it's, it, it depends on what you're seeing and where you're seeing it and what the show calls for. Yeah. Well, uh, those times of tragedy and, and drama, um, World War II gave us Oklahoma and, and Waiting for Godot. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of, of this, uh, this year. It will be. And the question will be, do people address the pandemic head on in their writing. It's obviously influenced people's moods and thoughts and, and viewpoints on life. But, so will they express it literally or will it be something that is reflected in the spirit, the mood, the style of storytelling that people adopt? Certainly uh, there were a number of plays following the 9-11 tragedy that dealt with the enormity of that in some cases, always off stage, but in some cases it was spoken of literally and in other cases it was expressions of the shock that we felt because this country had never had uh, a foreign attack on our shores. And of course, that great response uh, through plays to the uh, HIV. I should correct myself. Well. Yeah. We hadn't had a foreign attack in many, many years. We could we yes. could discuss the Revolutionary War, the yeah. war, a few others like the War of eighteen twelve. I don't have the historians coming after me, but uh, <laughs> certainly in recent times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as I was saying, that the, the great amount of um, uh, AIDS-themed plays that, that were a response to that pandemic as well. Absolutely, I think anything that happens in society is ultimately going to be reflected in its art, whether it will be reflected immediately, whether it will be reflected literally. But when you have 
major events that affect everyone. And even in a divided era, there are still events that affect everyone. It's inevitable that, that the art's going to reflect it. And it's not simply theater. I think it could be, it'll be in music, it'll be in movies, it'll be in television. Um, and at the same time, I think what has happened here with this pandemic is it has forced artists to work in different mediums than they have before, to often be self-reliant in the creation of work because there aren't big producers putting on shows. And I actually hope, and I've, I've written this in my column for the stage in London, I actually hope theaters don't when, when, when theater companies, when, when their theaters are able to open again, I wanna see everybody back on stage, no question. But I think there's something very interesting in the idea that theater companies can also produce media. Um, and, and I hope that avenue will continue to be explored because right now people are doing it often with the fixed camera of their laptop or the moving camera of their iPhone. But um, it's not the same as, as really being prepared to shoot a movie, shoot a film, um, shoot a television show, what have you and whether there's hybrid approaches that, that can be done as well. I, I think we may have found a new way, not certainly the only new way, the old way is good too. Yeah. Well, if there ever was a tonic for the disaster that has engulfed the world this year, it's one of my favorite plays. And this play is called Our Town. <laughs> I was delighted to learn. Myself. Yes, I was delighted to learn that you've recently uh, been working on a book that essays one of the, the great plays of the American canon, Our Town by Thornton Wilder. Um, it's exciting, Howard. I never thought I would be able to write a book, so I'm certainly excited about the book that I've done. And, and yeah, it's really interesting looking at Our Town now and what does it mean in this moment, does it mean something different than it meant in 1938 when Thornton Wilder wrote it? And my book, Another Day's Begun, is primarily the, the thoughts, ideas, opinions, viewpoints of others. Now I have the opportunity, if, if people invite me to, to talk about what, what I've thought of the play, because the book is predominantly oral history and it's the oral history of a dozen productions and it's the many people from each production talking about the experience of doing the play and indeed in some cases the stories that surrounded those productions going on. Uh, I think a book of people endlessly telling you what they think of George Gibbs could get a little dull but the fact that we've got, that I've got uh, uh, a youth theater production, kids aged 10 to 18, a college production, primarily uh, 18 to 22, professional productions with a range of ages, 
uh, a group that meets every couple of months in Louisville, Kentucky, in somebody's living room to read the play aloud. And they call themselves the Church of Grover's Corners, as well as productions, one production that was done in uh, an emergency intake psychiatric medical facility uh, in Pennsylvania by a completely amateur cast of the staff. It wasn't that the patients were made to be in it. It wasn't performed for the patients. These are patients with very, very acute illness. It was done as a fundraiser to benefit the, the students, well, the, 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 uh, the patients. And what's revealed in talking to these people is how therapeutic the play was for them at the end of the day not to simply go home with their stress, but to go and be someone else and be involved in this simple story. The final chapter in the book is about a production that was done in 2013 at Sing Sing Maximum Security Prison, which is one of the sadly fabled prisons in America. Uh, and let me tell you, to talk to the men who were in that production, some of whom have now been paroled. Actually, the man who played the stage manager in our town and who I saw last year as John Adams in 1776 was paroled now 11 days ago after 22 years. Oh, brilliant. So, so as I say, the stories that surround our town are quite remarkable in some cases. And, and that Sing Sing production, which, which I was privileged to see the only performance that was done for the public. There were two performances for the population of, of the facility. It was one of the most extraordinary experiences I've ever had going to see a thing called theater. And I say a thing called theater because it was done in the visitor's room of this maximum security prison. And it was my first time being on the grounds of a maximum security prison to see this play, which people sometimes want to treat as just something for kids to do in high school. It's a lot deeper than that. This is a very dense text. How, how can we best describe what the play is about? Because um, it takes place over a, a decade, is it? Uh, the play, well, it's, it's, even that's a question. What, what I've learned, and I have to say what, what I learned from talking to the 115 people that I talked to for this book, is how easy it is to skate over the surface of this play, and then how deep do you want to get? So when you ask me a question like that, let me, let me back up. The play does not have a conventional narrative in the sense that the largest role is played by a character called the stage manager. We don't know who he is. We don't know where he's from. He has no story of his own, but he is telling us about a story that's contained within the narrative he's sharing with people. We see scenes from life in this small town in New Hampshire from 1899 to uh, 1912-1913, but we see really just snippets, and there's no conventional conflict in it. We learn about the town, 
We hear about one kid not doing his chores. We hear about a young woman who has dreams of making speeches her whole life. And for the first two acts, many people could say, what on earth am I watching? And then the third act, which I don't like to spoil for people, takes yeah. the, the experience into an experience that has seemed realistic and takes it way out of realism all of a sudden in a way that even now, uh, 83 years after the play debuted on Broadway, I think can still be really startling for people who don't know the play. And I can say as somebody who's seen the play a lot, is still extraordinarily, extraordinarily affecting, even if you do know what's coming. Oh, I agree. I saw a production of it last year and uh, that final act really packs a punch and forces oneself to just reflect on our own mortality and life and, and what we're contributing to the world. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's painful, but it's beautiful. It's really hard to, to describe how our town differs from most plays. All plays affect us. We see a story, we respond to the story. We, we feel things for certain characters, we empathize with those characters and their experience, or we watch a story that is joyful or painful, and we feel that. Our town is deliberately designed to tell the audience something. And all the things that it shows is really about you in your seat. And you're constantly being spoken to. And you're constantly being reminded that you're sitting in a theater watching this story. It's, it's not, you're, you're supposed to imagine that that's something real happening up on stage in front of you. No, it's meta-theatrical, and I think that's acknowledged from the very first lines where the stage manager welcomes everybody and says, well, personalises the production, who it's directed by, who, who are playing the roles. Uh, exactly. And then the, the story is told with minimal sets, no props. It's an extraordinary piece. It's, it's been interesting because the play became very, very famous uh, for for its incredibly spare design, basically the any any definition of space really is lighting, and all you have are chairs and tables and a couple of ladders. And in the words of of Thornton Wilder, and a couple of trellises for people who have to have scenery, but it's it's really skeletal because it doesn't want you to fixate on what the set looks like. It wants you to focus on the ideas and it lets you imagine as much or as little as you're prone to doing when, when you see a story told without all of the usual signifiers. Yeah, a, a classic can certainly transcend time and the play is relevant today as it ever was. Even though a lot of the content is about baseball games and ice cream sodas, um, a contemporary audience watching the play will, will certainly reap much from it. I certainly think that's the case. I, I certainly talked to a number of people for the book who said that their first reaction on hearing about the play being done was they couldn't understand why. 
uh, if they were professionals, they'd go out for it because it was a job. Uh, and then there are other people who said, I've always wanted to do this play. I did it in school when I was a kid, but I, now I want to do it. People, everybody comes in in a different way. A lot of people feel it's cliched, but that's because they really haven't looked at it. Um, which of course is part of the message of the play is we have to stop and look at things and really appreciate what's in front of us. And with our town, I think most people remember the first two acts and forget everything that happens in the third act, which is where everything comes together. It's, it's sort of like people who, who are binging a series and are told, no, 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 you've got to wait till episode five. It really kicks in at episode five. And yes, it takes a little patience to fully understand what Wilder is trying to do to you. And, and yeah, I do believe it transcends the, speci the specifics that are in the script. And though I've not done a, a literary analysis, a dramaturgical analysis of the play, I have looked at Wilder's original handwritten script and I realized how much he took out of the play how, how spare he continued to make it, even with a, ma a major revision in 1955, 1956, he took things out of the script that people had been using for years to make it less specific. That's why it's fascinating to me that one of the first professional productions that I'm aware of, possibly the first major professional production in 2021 is going to be in Brisbane at, um, at Queensland Theater. I would love to be able to see what they're doing with it. They were still casting last I knew. I don't know the talent pool well in Australia, but I'm very curious about the approach, about who's playing who, what does it say about Australia today? Does it need to say anything about Australia today? Or is it simply about the message? That, that Wilder wants us all to walk away with. And, and of course, in Australia, it was done by the Perth Festival last year. The Sydney Theatre Company did a production of it about five years ago. I directed a school production two years ago. I saw an amateur company last year. It's a play that even resonates and is performed regularly in Australia. It's been performed all over the world, really from the very start. The play ran on Broadway in 1938 and then began to be licensed for international productions the following year. Now, there was a big interruption in most productions, uh, by in the interruption caused by World War II. But even before the war, when America, of course, was at war with Japan, um, as were many other countries, the play had already been done in Japan before we were at war. The play said something there. Um, that's an interesting testament to the play's power. And as soon as the war was over, it was getting done everywhere possible. Interestingly, it didn't reach the West End until 1946 because of, of what the war had done. In fact, Wilder's following play, Skin of Our Teeth, opened before our town in London. And interestingly, it was not a success in its original run in London. It, uh, it, it ran just a couple of weeks. Yet, 
in the book, I have two British productions, uh, one from the Royal Exchange in Manchester and one from the Open Air Theatre in Regent's Park in London. It's still getting done. There was a pub theatre production a few years ago. You go back a little bit in 1991, Alan Alda made his big return to the stage as the stage manager. One could go country by country and, and find major productions of our town. It's, it's, I believe it's been translated into 80 languages at this point. It's a, it's a very universal piece. I think anybody sitting and watching it, because it's a play about community, it's a, ba- a play about family. We all have those experiences and those stories and we see reflections of ourselves and the people on stage and the stories that they're telling, whether it be just mother preparing breakfast as we go off to school. Um, everybody has a personal connection somewhere in the play. What's been, what's been really terrific is that the play is not, unlike many plays where they're now managed by an estate, playwright has passed, the Wilder family has been extraordinarily accommodating and do not require this play to only be done the way it was done originally. And so we're now seeing a variety of gender represented in our town. We're seeing a variety of race and ethnicity uh, and disability in our town. It surely was in 1938, a play by a white man being done in the theater in New York. The audience at that point was very white, set in New Hampshire, which would have been at that time a pretty white community. But going back even, certainly it's played internationally, as I already said, for years, but in 1968, there was a, new, a production in Los Angeles at the Inner City Cultural Center, which was completely multicultural. It was, it was a, what we would call a colorblind cast. We've now moved into an era where casting shouldn't be blind. We have to acknowledge who people are, what their heritage is, what their background is. But that can be folded into the play as well. One of the productions I wrote about was a production at uh, uh, Miami New Drama, which did a trilingual production. Uh, it was in English, it was in Spanish, and it was in Creole. And so one of the families in the play was a Spanish family that only spoke Spanish at home. The other family had a Creole mother and the children understood Creole. The father did not. But that reflected the three main languages spoken in Miami today. And so it was a way of bringing the play forward. And even though the lines about 1899 and chicken coops and, and strawberry phosphates remain, that becomes secondary to the somewhat or hopefully eternal truths that Wilder tried to get at and that those truths seem to hold meaning for people regardless of where they're from um, and where they're doing it, going back to a place like Sing Sing or the, the psychiatric facility. 
Wilder was so eloquent in his expression of the human condition. And there, there are quotes throughout the play, which I just find so moving. Um, Emily's alone, which seems to sum up a lot of the play. My wasn't life awful and wonderful. I, I have a favorite line from the play or a couple of lines from the play, and I'm not even sure why they're my favorite. Um, it's the stage manager in act one who's talking about the stories that are being told. And he says, this is the way we were. This is the way we were in the provinces north of New York at the beginning of the 20th century. This is the way we were in our growing up and in our marrying and in our living and in our dying. I find it unbelievably beautiful. And every time I see the play, I silently mouth those words when they're spoken. It's wonderful. Some benediction feeling that, that I have and just love it. There is a, a, um, a spiritual aspect to the play as well. I mean, that, that, that hymn, Blessed Be the Ties That Bind, is, is carried throughout the play, whether it be in a church um, a choral rehearsal or a wedding. Um, it constantly uh, supports and is a, an under, undercurrent to the narrative of the play. It is, yet there's no specificity about religion. It is presumably a Protestant denomination, given the time, the place, the hymn. Um, but I think the messages of our town are not specifically religious. I late in the play in the book refer to our town as having a type of secular theology in that there there is a belief in something greater what that something greater is where we fit in the great plan of the universe and the mind of god is part of the play but re the, the practice of religion per se isn't really explicit. I think my favorite production that I have seen, I was lucky to be in New York in 2009 and the Barrow Theatre uh, presented that production by David Cromer. Uh, and it went on to become the longest running production of the play, didn't it? Yeah, in, in New York City, it was the longest running production of the play. I, I can't speak for, for other cities, other countries, but definitely the longest in New York. But so powerful. We were all, uh, the theater surrounded the stage. It was a very intimate venue. The characters from memory were dressed in contemporary clothes. Um, Relatively and, nondescript, really the kind of clothes that you'd see people wear if they were going to a rehearsal. Yeah. And beautiful storytelling. That production, I think, opened up people's thinking about our town again. I think it was a highly influential production. And that New York run, that was one of six cities that that production played in. It played twice in Chicago. It played in New York. It played in Santa Monica. It played in Kansas City. And it played in Boston. And it played in London. Wow. So it... It certainly was um, a milestone in the history of our town and quite an extraordinary experience. It's actually the first oral history in the book is about David Cromer's production. And I could have done a whole book just based on talking with David Cromer about our town because his yeah. insights are phenomenal. 
Yeah, yeah. You should well, say he also, played the stage manager. He did he, indeed. He decided that that's what it needed to be. Is that that he and he's a terrific actor. It's not that he'd never been on stage before, to say the least, but that that's how he wanted to interpret that character. Is if he's in charge of everything on stage, which he sort of is, then. Why not have the guy who actually is in charge of everything that's on stage? <laughs> yeah, the director. Um, David went on, to, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, to win the Tony Award for Best Director of the Band's Visit. That sounds right, but I, yeah. I don't have my Tony history down as, as well as I used to. We won't do a Tony quiz then. Um, your career as an administrator, an advocate, an author is immense, but it would be remiss of me not to ask you about your time at the American Theatre Wing, hosting the long-running video series, working in the theatre, and the podcast Downstage Centre. Both of these shows I devoured when I was at drama school. Um, they taught me so much and gave access to some incredible luminaries of the, the New York stage, which uh, you had the joy of... of uh, chairing on on panel discussions they were phenomenal thank you well thank you um for saying that i i always say you know as somebody who works in theater i'm used to being able to walk into the back of the house and know how people are responding the fact that most of what i do have done go, people consume it elsewhere and maybe i hear about it maybe i don't the Wing had been doing working in the theater long before I showed up. It had been doing it for years and years. I hope we made some improvements. I hope we broadened the, the scope of the kind of people we were talking to. I didn't host all of them. We, I think there were about 80 produced in my time at The Wing, and I hosted about 30 of them, but I was involved in producing all of them. Downstage Center was something that I cooked up when, when I got to The Wing, and uh, we 325 episodes of that and you know I still can't believe some of the people that I got to come sit with me for an hour I I if you listen closely at the end of my interview with Stephen Sondheim if you find it out there it's on SoundCloud and some other some other services I did thanked him and I was on the verge of tears because that is the music of my life um, just to be able to sit in a room with these people and to say that I've had an hour with them and that I've been able to share that hour, that it wasn't about an experience solely for me, but that hopefully, to the degree possible, I was asking these people things that other people would want to hear. At the big, if you listen to the early shows, I was talking too much. I, I learned as we went along to, to be better at it, ask a question, just shut up. Well, I watched a couple of episodes in preparation for this chat today. And in one episode, you're chairing a panel that consisted of Angela Lansbury, Bill Irwin, Jane Alexander, Cynthia Nixon, and Australia's Jeffrey Rush. Did it ever become daunting conversing with giants like these? I have to say, for the most part, no partly because I'd been working in theater long enough that many of the people who came in I'd met before. And some were even, even friends. That panel, Angela had been involved with the American Theater Wing. She actually was a student uh, at the American, or she got, a, she got a, a grant from the American Theater Wing to study theater 
when she and her mom came over during World War II. So her history with the wing goes back. So I'd met her um, and Bill Irwin is just my hero. I think he's one of the great geniuses uh, of our time and the nicest man imaginable. So, and Cynthia Nixon had done a show at Hartford Stage. She'd been in a production of The Master Builder with Sam Waterston at Hartford Stage when I was the PR director there. So by that point, it wasn't too daunting, especially because my goal was to have them talk to each other. The, yeah. the only program that made me nervous was I wondered if, if it could get out of hand when I had, let me see if I get this right, uh, Kevin Spacey, Brian Dennehy, Liev Schreiber, oh, I'm gonna forget the fourth guy, I can't remember. But I just thought these people could overwhelm me. And <laughs> the fact is they got such a, they get such a kick out of talking to each other. That's the most interesting thing to me that I learned doing these programs is a lot of interviews, not unlike this, are one-to-one. -one. An interviewer asks a question, the other person answers. And working in the theater, it was the rare opportunity to have sometimes, well, in all cases, really impressive theater artists, whether they were famous or not famous is really the differential, talk about the work that they do and not just telling stories over a drink and not teaching a class, but just talking to each other about the art. And, and it was always fascinating because actors, of course, would have a great time, but directors, designers would come in and directors would say, we don't get to talk to, to one another all that often. We're working and there's not usually another director in the so people relish the opportunity to talk with one another and then to know that that, that could be shared. And I have to say, you know, we're, we're almost 10 years on from the end of my run with Downstage Center and, and working in the theater. And I have to say that I'm delighted to know it's still out there, not because I want myself out there, um, but because I think a key part of my career has been helping people understand more about how theater gets made. And I think the more you know about theater, the more you can appreciate and ultimately love theater. So someday it'll be old. It'll be too antique to have meaning, but at least for a time that it's, it's reached some people and they've found value in it is, is all that I could have asked for. Well, it's a wonderful resource, and um, I recommend it to any uh, theatre student or any fan of the theatre. And um, how wonderful that people all around the world have been been finding it and um, and learning from it. When I was right. at the wing, oh, I was just going to say, when I was at the wing, was still the early days of the internet and putting that material online. That the 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 prior programs had never been seen except by a certain number. If you went to certain libraries, which had VHS tapes of it, so it really was this this not just the creating of the new, but the opening up of the old. Yes, I, I think I remember I had to download some some copies before I could watch it. Now you just press play, and we're we're in that studio with you. 
you're right. The opportunity to discuss process obviously was was very uh, evident in that that panel discussion with with Lansbury, Irwin, etc. I think the the title of the episode was Work and Play, and it was fascinating to hear those artists who I think were all in a Broadway play at the time. Um, Exit the King for Jeffrey and um, Lansbury was in Blythe Spirit, I think, and um, Bill Irwin was in um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. At the I time. Didn't, it's funny, I don't remember the exact timing. Cynthia may have been doing Rabbit Hole at the time. Yeah, something like that, sure. I think, yeah. I played um, with it. The funny thing is, I don't remember. It's now they're far enough in the past. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. not like you say, I talk to those people and I go, really? But I do, I could watch it and go, oh, right. Oh, right, I remember this because, again, after hosting 30 TV shows and 325 downstage centers, let alone interviews I've done since in my work for the stage and other publications, I can't remember them all. <laughs> Which is good, because then someday they'll all be new to me. Well, you continue to write for the stage. I mean, you, you write for the, uh, I think it's called the stage. The, the, it is, uh, the stage. In, in London. Um, yep. Where else can we find your your essays and writing and reflections? Well, the stage is the most regular, although uh, there's been some, some cutback in my output there simply because of the pandemic and, and budget safety. Um, I, I usually was writing weekly, I now write bi-weekly. That's the most regular. I write for Stage Directions, which is online. I've occasionally written for American Theatre Magazine and then some other one-offs here and there. As well as, although again, for the past couple of years, my focus has been, other than on my regular gigs, it's been on the book. I have a website which has dozens, uh, maybe hundreds of pieces that I've written over the past 10 years at hesherman.com. So there's a lot there. Some of it's probably junk now if I look back on it. And there's some that I remain very proud of and I'm, I'm happy to know it's there. And, and I will, I absolutely know the, the post I will be writing uh, that will appear the day the book comes out, January 28th. Um, I know exactly what I'm putting there. Um, I just have to write it. Howard, why do you think uh, the arts are crucial to society? I can answer that in so many different ways. I can answer it on an economic basis because the arts are a lure and a draw and a spin-off of what they do for a community and for the restaurants and the parking garages and the stores that surround them is extraordinary. Uh, the arts are an important employer people have to remember that the people who work in theater, dance, music, opera, um, are not doing this for charity. It's their jobs and they're there. And we, we need to look no further than this pandemic. What is seeing us through? Okay, a lot of people are baking, I get that. But what's seeing us through? We're seeing, we're watching we're watching television, we're watching streaming arts, uh, we're, we're listening to music. That, that is something that, that has been a lifeline, even when a lot of new material can't be made. 
most conversations I have with people other than how are you? Oh, you know, how are you? Oh, you know. And then you end up talking about what you watched on Netflix. And a lot of the talent that is part of that, it's very fluid, whether it's television, film, theater, people go back and forth and they develop different tools and different skills. So, so there's, there's, there's economic for the people who work in it, there's economic for communities. And then it's simply that we all find things that we love that speak to us. And I didn't have a ton of exposure to the arts when I was a kid. There was the occasional school trip and I probably saw a ballet once and I probably saw a junior version of an opera once and I got taken to a couple of young people's symphonies. And I only, the only time I went to theater until I was 12 or 13 was, was my parents had taken me to see Fiddler on the Roof when I was in second grade. Um, but I didn't see a lot of theater, but somehow started to know that I really liked theater. And I started reading scripts. And so for me, not only are the arts a passion, um, they are my job, but I do it because I wanted to be part of this world. And there are a lot of people who, who enjoy this world and can enjoy it at whatever level they want to, whatever it is they want to see. And I think there's something really wonderful about being able to gather and let people tell you a story. That story may be a happy story. They may sing that story to you. It may be a sad story. It may be a provoking story. But the sheer idea that we gather for the live performing arts, I think is one of the things that can still hopefully bind us as people, even as we watch uh, the, the divisions of, of politics and, and so many others. If we can all get in a room together and share stories, that's quite something. And, you know, we used to be able to do that more easily with television back when there were very few channels. You know, you watched, I mean, when I was growing up, there were three commercial networks in the U.S. There was public television and there were three or four local stations that mostly showed reruns. So when you ran into people, odds are, you ran into people who watched the same thing you did last night. Now it's all shifted. We don't gather except for live events, whether those live events are televised or whether we go to see a live event in person. But seeing a live event in person is just, just for me, magical. Some people don't like it. They don't want to sit next to strangers. Um, they don't want to be told when they have to be there. They don't want to be told when they get to go to the bathroom. Um, I understand that too. For me, I don't mind the strictures because um, to me, they're not. They're, they're treasured traditions that I'm happy to be a part of. As an audience member, I'm not even speaking as a writer or as an arts administrator. I'm just speaking about somebody who goes to the theater. I don't have to see 120 shows a year. I see 120 shows a year because I want to see shows. Yeah, yeah. Well, Howard, thank you for, uh, for joining me today and, and sharing your story and the, the story of our town. I've been a fan for quite a while since uh, I was introduced to, to working in the theatre. And um, when our mutual friend Mark Humphreys suggested you as, uh, as an episode, I, I jumped at the chance. So, so thank you, Mark. And, and thank you, Howard. 
Well, thank you, Peter. This has been great. Another Day's Begun, Thornton Wilder's Our Town in the 21st Century is out in January and I can't wait to get my hands on a copy. It sounds like the perfect Christmas gift because this episode, Howard, is, is going to air uh, in um, early December. So uh, people can, can order online, can't they? Yes, yes. They, they can order from Amazon and they can order from uh, bloomsbury.com, uh, which, which published the book. And uh, yes, it's a perfect Christmas gift for people who like getting their Christmas gifts at the end of January. <laughs> um, but because my birthday is two days after the book is published, I like to think of all these people opening this present that I gave them. That would be a wonderful birthday present for you. Howard, all the best for the festive season and indeed for 2021. May it see us return to the theatres. Oh, please God, yes. I must admit to being in tremendous awe of Howard and his immense body of work. My introduction to Howard, as you heard, was devouring endless hours of his audio and visual programs downstage centre and working in the theatre, in which he had conversations with absolutely everyone. You name a luminary on Broadway or the West End and Howard will have presented them and their work in his programs. I cannot recommend the series highly enough and particularly recommend them to the young artists who wish to make a life in the theatre. Do seek them out. Valuable lessons indeed and I'm sure you'll find them certainly on YouTube and um, by Howard's website. Don't forget that Howard's book, Another Day's Begun, Thornton Wilder's Our Town in the 21st Century, will be released in January. I cannot wait to obtain a copy. Our Town is a glorious play, and how wonderful that it is being celebrated in a tome to join the other great theatre books on our shelves. Our Town is also being produced by the Queensland Theatre Company in 2021. If you're in the neighbourhood, do check it out. My guest next time is Shauna Jensen. Shauna is an Australian singer and this year has celebrated her 50th year in the business. She's been a member of multiple bands including Purple Vision and Flake. And she was a cast member of Australia's Jesus Christ Superstar and appears on the original Australian cast recording. Shauna has performed backup vocals with many acts such as In Excess, Jimmy Barnes, Billy Thorpe, Powderfinger and Hugh Jackman. She has much to say and again, another insightful conversation to be found on stages. Thanks for joining us today. It's always a joy to have your company. As always, thanks for listening. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time. Music.